invite you to turn with me again to Romans chapter 8 as we come to just some of the most well-known, well-loved verses in all the Bible, Romans chapter 8. Last week we looked at verse 28 itself, today we're going to be looking at verses 29 and 30. Romans chapter 8, we'll begin reading at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, this morning we thank you that you give your word and you give your spirit. We pray again today that what we do not know, you will teach us. What we do not have, you will give us. What we are not, Lord, you will make us, all for the glory of our Savior Jesus, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We pray it in his name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to uh, use your imagination a little bit this morning. I'm going to ask you to imagine what it must be like or what it would be like uh, to be a canvas used by some master artist. So you are uh, there sitting there in a store somewhere, uh, just a plain piece of cloth, uh, nothing unusual about you, nothing notable about you, not worth really that much. And then one day Vincent van Gogh walks into the shop and, and picks you up and brings you into his studio and begins to go to work. And you are under his masterful hand becoming a masterpiece. Not because of anything, of course, in you, not because of anything you had done, not because of any potential that was latent in you, but simply because of the artist. And I'd like to suggest that being a Christian is much like being that canvas. We are a people who are the recipients of the master, skillful artistry that that God himself is performing. We are, we are part of something good and glorious and beautiful as God is working out His purposes, His saving purposes in our life. It's something that we, we tend to forget. If I were to ask you this morning, uh, what is a Christian? You would probably respond by telling me things that Christians do. You'd probably say a Christian is someone who believes in Jesus. A Christian is someone who goes to church. A Christian is someone who tries to live a, a godly life. And all of those things, of course, are true. But they're all self-referential, aren't they? They're, it's all about what, what we do. And it, it, it makes it seem as though we are the primary actor in the story of our Christian life. And, and that's just not the case, as we see in our text 
this morning. God is the primary actor in the story of our Christian life. A Christian is first and foremost someone who is the recipient of incredible, sovereign, saving activity. That's fundamentally what a Christian is. Our text this morning is it's, it's full of big theological words, and we're going we're gonna to unpack them, but the, the main message is quite simple. The primary agent in our Christian existence, our Christian life, is God, not us. Uh, God is the painter, we're the canvas. Or as Paul will say in, in chapter 9, uh, God is the potter, we're the clay. And the story of our life is what God is doing by, according to his own purpose, his own love, his own power, his own pleasure, what God is doing with the clay of your life, the canvas of your life, for his glory and for our eternal joy. So the foundational story of our Christian life, the foundational story isn't about what we believe or what we do, what we accomplish, but what God has purposed and what God has promised and what God is accomplishing in us. And we need to see ourselves then primarily as the, the recipient of the gracious work of God. Let me, let me just quickly tell you the difference this will make and could make in your life. You see, if, if you think about your Christian life primarily in terms of what you believe um, and how well you're doing in the various Christian duties as you understand them, how well you're, how you're doing reading your Bible, how well you're doing in your prayer life, how well are you doing in your sanctification, how's that coming along, all good questions... But if you think of your Christian life primarily in those terms, you'll tend either to anxiety or pride. You'll either be concerned because there's just so many areas in your life where you'll have to admit it's not up to the standard. It's not, it's not what it ought to be. And so you'll be, there'll be fear, and there'll be worry and anxiety, or they'll be proud. You'll look at yourself and say, I got this thing pretty well figured out, doing quite well. And not even realizing all the ways that you're still falling short of the glory of God. So, so that's what happens when we focus, you see, on ourselves. But, you see, if we think of ourselves primarily as the recipients of the marvelous grace and power and love and purpose of God, if, if, if you primarily think of yourself in those terms, well, that's going to yield deep gratitude and assurance and humility. It's where do you look when you think about yourself as a Christian? Do you look inward or do you look outward? Paul, right, remember in Galatians 2.20 says, The life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. His, his focus is, is outward. That, that defines who I am. And, and, and I live under that reality, under that banner. The biblical way of thinking about yourself as a Christian is to, is to begin with a grasp of God's primary role. And that's what, what we have here in our text. Notice, uh, we're halfway through the letter. Paul's magnificent letter to the Romans. Halfway through, and Paul has not yet said nearly anything at all about our responsibility to live, uh, you know, how we're to live as a Christian. He won't get to that until chapter 12. And when he, when he does get there, he'll say, now in view of the mercies of God, that's how he begins. This is how we ought to live. 
Well, these are the mercies that he has in mind. These are the mountains of God's grand uh, saving activity in our life that we're to live in the shadow of. And that will provide wonderful assurance. It's hard to be a Christian. Um, it, it's hard in the sense that we're weak, we're fickle, we, we need assurance. Do you, ever, do you ever just despair of your Christian life? Do you ever feel like God is disappointed in you? Do you ever feel disappointed in yourself? You know, you know better and yet you do what you know you should not do? Well, I think that's a common experience of every child of God. But it's particularly true of those who focus on what they are doing instead of what God is doing. And the more that we grasp in a functional way that we are God's workmanship, that we're a work that God is performing and that God's sovereign saving purposes in our life will certainly come to pass, the more we're going to be able to walk in joy and peace. And so that's what we're after this morning. You might uh, know that these two verses here uh, are often referred to as the chain of redemption. The chain of redemption. Paul lists five links in this, uh, this chain of the works of God. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. Every link is immutable, unbreakable. Um, every link belongs to every Christian in equal measure. Nobody's more foreknown or more called or more justified. We're all going to be equally glorified. And these are the things that, that are to form the foundation of our Christian identity, the foundation of our Christian assurance, and the foundation for our Christian life. And so let's pay attention as we walk through these five links and uh, I won't be able to do these exhaustively. Obviously, when I preached this uh, 20 years ago, um, I took a, a, one sermon for each point. And uh, if, uh, if we can do that, I don't want to do it tonight because I don't want this morning, I don't want to lose the big picture of what Paul is trying to say. Let's just go through them then in order. Those he foreknew. A contrary to common uh, opinion, God's foreknowledge is not his ability to know things before they happen. He does know things before they happen. We call that omniscience. God knows everything. Not only everything that's going to happen, but everything that could possibly happen. He knows all things. But that's not what foreknowledge refers to. Foreknowledge refers to God's loving, selecting, and choosing individuals to be his own or individuals to a particular task. And the, the, if, just to help, in the Hebrew, the word know and love are the same. And so this is God's loving, choosing, selecting. In Jeremiah 1, we have a great example. 1 verse 5, where he says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And so you see, God's foreknowing of Jeremiah isn't that he knew about Jeremiah before he was born, but that he set Jeremiah apart before he was born and appointed Jeremiah as a prophet before he was born. God's foreknowledge is God's forechoosing. And that reminds us of the biblical truth of election, that God chooses some out of the mass of humanity to be his people, he chooses them, and he gives those people to Christ to be saved. Jesus 
talks specifically about this in John 17, verse 6, in his high priestly prayer. Jesus says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed my word. Well, Jesus says they were yours, and the question we just want to ask is, in, in what sense? In what sense were they gods? I mean, think about who Jesus is talking about. He's talking about Matthew, a reviled, wicked, just a slum. I mean, Matthew, there's nothing good you can say about him. He's a tax collector. A lot of the, the people who followed Jesus were, were just the, the bottom of the barrel when it comes to the moral reality, right? These are prostitutes and, and tax collectors and, and, and the people who failed abysmally in the moral game of life. So in what sense can prostitutes and tax collectors be called, um, be said to belong to God? Every Jew around would have said they don't belong to God at all. Well, Jesus says they do. And the way that they do is by God's sovereign foreknowledge. God chose them to belong to himself and gave them to Jesus. And Jesus says, and I, and I spoke your word to them and they've obeyed. You see, friends, our salvation is rooted then in that eternal will of God. If you belong to Jesus today, if you're a Christian today, if you can honestly say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came into the world for the salvation of sinners. If you can honestly say today, I have confessed my sin and I've taken Jesus as my Savior and Lord. If you can say that in truth today, the reason you can say it is because before you were born or even the, found, the world was formed, God foreknew you. And then he gave you to Jesus. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 1. He, that is God, chose us in Him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world. Just let that rattle around in your, in your brain for a bit. It's a stunning thought. It's incredibly a humbling thought. Why would God choose you? you maybe you thought you just kind of grew up in your, in your family, in your Christian home, and and you just became a Christian because your family is a Christian, or, or you had the good sense at some point to realize your need for Christ, whatever reasons you thought. And God uses those things, praise God, but the fundamental reason you're a Christian and not out walking in absolute darkness and death today is because God knew you, you individually, you personally, before the foundation of the world, and God said, this one is mine. And God gave you to Jesus Christ. And that's why you're a Christian today. It's incredibly humbling. Why would he choose you? It's not because of anything in us. The hymn writer says, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and would rather starve than come? And the, the only answer to that is because God decided to do so. So our eternal glory in the age to come is rooted in the eternal love and choice of God before the world was formed. He foreknew you. He loved you. And then he, secondly, predestined you. And God's predestination is just his sovereign ordering and decreeing what he has purposed. And, and what God decrees always happens. 
infallibly, right? The decree of God is the most certain reality in the world. It's immutable, can't be changed. So when God says this in Isaiah 14, 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Period. It's the way it is. Ezekiel 12, 25, I am the Lord. I speak, and the word which I speak will come to pass. Because God's decrees are immutable, they're irrefutable, they, can't be, they, they cannot change. And, and God has decreed that all those whom he has foreknown will be made like Jesus. And we just need to see that part of this verse. He predestined you to a very particular end, and an incredibly beautiful end. He didn't just predestine you to be forgiven. He didn't just predestine you to be saved. He predestined you, as Paul says, to be conformed to the image, the likeness of Jesus Christ, so that Jesus could be the firstborn among many brothers. God's passion in predestining your salvation is that Jesus, who gave his life in obedience to God, that Jesus would be glorified by having a vast family who look just like him. Men and women and boys and girls who once were in the bondage to sin and death, and yet by the grace and power of God have been radically transformed to the degree that you can literally call them a new creation, and they've been made into the most glorious thing in heaven. Angels don't get to be made into the image and likeness of Christ. Only children of God do. And that is what God has predestined, which means it's going to happen. Has to happen. I, I hope that's good news to you. Man, wouldn't you like to be made like Jesus? To love God the way Jesus does? Wouldn't you like to, to be done with sin? Done with all weakness, all doubt, all fear, all unbelief? robed in glory and beauty, the beauty of God, saturated with honor. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? I hope your heart is hungry for it. I want mine to be increasingly hungry for it, and yet that's exactly what God has predestined. We're the, the piece of clay, just dirt, and God is forming something indescribably beautiful. First John, John the Apostle says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. Angels are bowed down without ceasing before the presence of Jesus, before His glory, His beauty, His honor. And they worship without ceasing Jesus. And they're going to continue to do that when we get there. But we're going to be like him. Like him. That's what God decreed for you before you were born. And if God has decreed it, it's going to happen. But how does it happen? How does it come to pass? Well, that's the next link. How does God's decree become a reality in the lives of people who by nature love the darkness and will not come to the light? Which is what Jesus says in John chapter three nineteen. 
This is the verdict. He says, the light is coming into the world, but, but people love the darkness. They don't want the light. And you know, if you know yourself at all, you know that's exactly right. That's, that's fallen human nature. That's indwelling sin. So, so how do you get people who love darkness, who hate light, how do you get them into the light? Well, that's the third link. Those whom he predestined, he also called. God's call, you see, is his personal intervening and acting to accomplish what he's purposed. And, and, and this truth is, was so precious to Paul. I mean, can you imagine the Apostle Paul as he's maybe, you know, sitting on the deck of a ship on one of his missionary journeys and you know, he's got his legs hanging over the side and the wind in his face and the sun is shining. He's wondering, how in the world did I get here? When I was as committed as I was to opposing Christ, to, to destroying his church, how did I get here, an apostle of Christ to the Gentiles? And the answer just comes back, the call of God, the call of God, the call of God. God's sovereign engagement in his life. And when Paul looks at the church, that's what he sees. He sees people who've been sovereignly engaged by the power of God and brought to Jesus. And so it's one of the, when Paul talks about or, or addresses Christians, he so often talks about the call. Listen in Romans chapter 1. To you, he says, who are called to belong to Jesus. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. How did all these, these lost Jews and Gentiles end up in the church of Jesus Christ when they hated the light? Well, by the call of God. They were called to belong to Jesus and they were called to be saints of God and by the power of God, that's what happens. You see, if you're a Christian, it's because God the Father sovereignly called you to faith. He brought you into contact with the gospel. Maybe it was um, your parents, maybe a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor, someone invited you to church, someone just sat down and read the Bible with you, but, but, but somehow... The gospel, God introduced the gospel into your life and God gave you the ability to, to receive it, to, to recognize it was true and to recognize your need. And then he brought you by his power to faith in Jesus Christ and you were saved all by the power of God. All according to the call of God. John Murray says the effectual call is a sovereign act of God the Father where he calls his elect to union with Christ in such a way that they certainly and inevitably respond with saving faith. We call this the effectual call of God. It, when God calls you to faith, you're going to come to faith. Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians 2. We ought, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth he called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just let those words settle. God called you. You're, you're not a Christian if God didn't call you. The only reason you're a Christian is because God called you. And God called you to share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
I mean, that should just be exploding some circuits. It's who you are. It's what God has done. And praise God for it, or you and I would never in a million years be saved. We'd never come to Jesus apart from the call of God. But there's another problem. What about our guilt? Because we're, the truth is we've sinned. We've, we've sinned in a thousand, thousand ways, and, and, and that sin means that we're guilty before the law of God. And it's, it's all well and good that we confess our sin and believe in Jesus, but that doesn't make the guilt go away. Not by itself. If a, if a man commits a murder and then and comes and confesses, that, yeah, I actually did this. I, I killed so-and-so, and I'm deeply, deeply sorry. It doesn't mean there's, the guilt goes away. The penalty still must be applied. Justice requires it. And that's the beauty of the next link. Those whom he called, he also justified. We talked about justification a a lot in Romans because Paul talks about it a lot in Romans. But just to remind you, justification is this incredible good news that God is able and willing to not only forgive you, but to declare you righteous forever, innocent before the throne of God in heaven. This is a legal declaration of God that he makes over your life that you are innocent, acquitted. Not because of anything you've done. Right? God did what the law could not do. What God has done in Jesus Christ as, as Jesus lives his perfect life and then offers that life up on a cross as a sacrifice to God, God is willing and God delights to take that perfect obedience of Jesus Christ and impute it to you. Impute it to you. Apply it to your account. And on the basis of Christ's perfect obedience and righteousness, God joyfully declares over all those he's called innocent. Truly innocent. It's not legal fiction. Because it's rooted in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Those whom he called, he also justified. And so we can sing as the hymn says, right? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and robed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, friends. How can it be? But that's exactly the truth for you and I in Christ Jesus. So now what? Well, now that we're justified, God is at work sanctifying, but Paul skips that because God's going to do that work. Right, we've been called to belong to Jesus. He goes right to the glorious end. Glorification. The very thing that God predestined for us to be made and conformed to the likeness of Christ, it's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns. One day, friends, you, your very person, just imagine this, your very person will be transformed in a moment, by the power of God, into the full likeness of Christ in every aspect of your being. Your body will, for the first time in its existence, be perfect. And not just perfect, but, but fit 
for a new existence in a new world, a new heaven and earth. Your mind, for the first time in your life, is going to be it's going to be perfect. It's going to, it's going to be able to understand the things of God as you never understood before. It's going to be focused on the glory of God in a way you could never focus before. It's going to see how the glory of God permeates all things and how you fit into that as, we, as you never understood it before so that your will is immediately transformed and you hunger and desire for the first time in your existence only what honors and pleases God. And your emotions for the first time in your life are just set true so that you delight in everything that's good and holy and right for the first time in your life. Your whole being perfected, glorified in the presence of Jesus. That is a good day. And that's where we're headed by the by the. Sovereign purpose, predestination, call of God. That's his goal. And the beauty of this chain of redemption is that at every single point, every point it's effectual. All those whom God foreknew, every single one will be predestined. And everyone predestined will be called. And everyone called will be justified. And everyone justified will be glorified. There will not be one soul lost at any point along the way. The work that God begun, he will carry on to completion. And that means, friends, that we can have immutable assurance. If you're a Christian, you can have infinite assurance because your assurance is is standing completely upon the work of God, the purpose of God. Let me just wrap up by applying this First of all, let me, let me apply it to, to those who do not believe and are not in faith this morning. You might be wondering and asking, you know, if salvation is all of God and he predestines those whom he's going to save, then how can I know if he's predestined me? And if he hasn't predestined me, what hope is there for me? And who could blame me if I'm lost, right? That's going to be the argument in Romans chapter 9. If I'm lost, well, God predestined me to be lost. It's, 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 it's not my fault. Well, the, the gospel answer to those questions is that you have, there's, there's every reason for hope in the world for you. You see, the sovereign acts of God in salvation are never hindrances to you coming to grace, but assurances of God's grace for those who believe. No one, no one comes to, to heaven knocking on the door. And, say, and says, give me Jesus. And, and God says, I'm sorry, you're not elect. It's never going to happen. The, the gospel goes out to everyone. Remember in the book of Acts, Peter is preaching his, his sermon in Acts chapter 2, this large crowd, and he, and he exalts Jesus as the one that God has made both Lord and Christ, and he's coming again, and the men were struck to the heart, and they cried out, what must we do to be saved? And Peter does not say, well, you're going to have to wait and see if God has chosen you. You have to wait and see if God calls you. It's not what he says. He says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
How, how can he say that with such confidence? Because, because that's the gospel promise. If you repent, if you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be forgiven of your sin and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you're sitting here this morning and you've never done that, I just plead, wouldn't, wouldn't you want to be part of this, this group of people who are just, just lumps of clay being made into something glorious and beautiful and eternal for the glory of God? And, 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 and if you would like to, today is the, is the day you can. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not a single person has been lost who truly obeyed that command. This salvation is for every sinner who is willing to bow the knee and call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me apply this also to those who have believed. How should this truth impact our life? Well, a couple things. One, this truth is meant to drive gospel mission. See, we, we don't make Christians. God makes Christians. All that he asks us to do is be just lights and messengers. That's all we need to do. Just be a light. Be a messenger. Be someone who invites. Because you see, we can do that in the absolute confidence that all those whom the Father has called will come. Remember what, Paul, what God says to Paul in Corinth. Stay there. I've got many people yet in this city. You just keep, keep preaching. Keep talking. I've got many people yet in this city. I believe God has many people yet in Grand Rapids. Many people who have been foreknown, have been predestined, and are waiting to be called. And that call comes through the gospel. As they hear it, as, as we speak it to them, as we invite them to come to our Bible study, to church, whatever it might be. We, we can just do that in the confidence that God will do all the work. Do you know that the, the, the great missionary movements of the church were, were um, driven by reformed men and women who were absolutely convinced of these truths? That the peoples belong to God and, and God has many elect that need to be brought in and so we need to go. That's one application. Secondly, it changes how we look at each other. When you look at a brother or sister in Christ, it doesn't matter if it's right in your home or at work or here at church, when you look at a brother and sister in Christ, you're looking at a masterpiece of God. You're looking at, at someone that God is doing this incredible work in, someone that God has foreknown before the foundation of the world and, and is called to himself and, and justified and is going to glorify. And so you're walking among incredible people, beautiful people, Dearly loved people. People who belong to Jesus. And that means we, we should be thankful for each other and, and humble before each other and kind. Be because we're, we're living among the saints of God. Right in our home or right in our church. The saints of God. It's a, it's a holy and precious thing. And we can be patient when we see the, the, the weaknesses and the, and the failures and the flaws because, well, they're not a finished work yet. It's not done yet. But the God who began it, it, it promises to complete it. And we're here to just encourage that along. 
And then finally, friend, we can live with such joy and assurance as we live out our Christian life. If you're, if you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, it's because God the Father has done all these things. He lovingly foreknew you and he predestined you and he called you effectually and by faith in Christ and through the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, you've been justified and one day by the promise and the purpose and the power of God, you, yes, you will be glorified. That your identity, that your destiny, it's the foundation for your life today. So friends, let's, let's twist just maybe a half a turn how we think about ourselves as Christians. Yes, there are things we need to believe and there are things we need to do. It's all true and there's weaknesses and, and it's, all, it's all there. But that's just half the story. The glorious things, the foundational things, the life and eternity defining things are these things. You are a work of God. You are a work of of God, and one day the glory of it is going to be yours. Only believe, Jesus would say. Only believe. Amen. Oh, Father in heaven, I just thank you so much for the incredible gospel. I, I, it's, it is a stunning thing to be the recipients of this kind of divine activity and this kind of eternal love. Lord, we see our weakness, we see our, our frailty, our failures, and we forget the sovereign purpose and the immutable predestination and the effectual call and the love that justified us and will one day glorify us. And oh God, I just pray that you'd help us to see ourselves in a new light so that as we think about who we are and what we are, we think first about what you've done and what you're doing and what it means to be clay in the hands of, a, of this beautiful master artist, this painter who's going to make of our life something more beautiful than we ever could have possibly imagined. And no matter how great our weakness and how, no matter, Lord, the... the the reality of our unbelief and our fear, the work that you've begun, you always carry out to full completion. And I just pray that we would walk then with profound humility and, and glorious assurance, with joy, with gratitude. We have everything if we have this. And Lord, if there is any here today who, who know that they're on the outside of this, this truth, I pray that today that your spirit would call them in and they would come to Jesus today. Father, your word is powerful, it's living, it's active. We pray that it would powerfully transform the way we think and how we feel, how we live, how we pray, and all for the glory of Jesus, our brother, amen. Let's stand together and sing that wonderful hymn, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place with Christ Within the Door. Let's stand.
God's people said, Amen. Amen. May God grant it. Now the Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace until he come again. Amen.